0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. What does it mean to live as one that is sent? Anybody else think about that? I know we're we're grabbing things from Scripture and we're talking about what it looks like and, you know, but what was a good indicator? And so I was playing around with sort of a definition, right? To be sent would be to live in obedience— With every person I see in every place that I go in every moment of time it sort of changed my outlook on life and what I do and where I go and so um, trying to break that down a little bit more I thought I'm a preacher you know it's got to be three points and they have to rhyme so I was trying to figure what can I do and and so I had a couple but I was really hooked on the last one right every person every place I go, every moment of my life. And so I was actually sitting at the little uh, kitchen bar yesterday morning with my mother-in-law, and we're sipping coffee. And I said, Mom, what's, a, what's another word for time? And we came up with a bunch of things, but none of them rhymed. And I thought, well, maybe I have to change the other two to rhyme with that. But then lo- I was looking in the thesaurus, th- th- the thesaurus, trying to find another word for thesaurus because it's hard to say. Um, And and as I was reading it through, it it, it talked about space, right? Like like the time and space, that moment of of space. So, to break it down, right, is to walk in obedience. Every face, every place, every space, right? Hey, that wasn't so bad, right? I'll copyright that. You can jump online from 1999. I'll have a brochure available. Um, But how how do we begin to think as people who are sent, right, every person that I encounter, every face that I see, every place that I go, every moment of my life, walking in obedience and surrender to Jesus, every face, every place, every space to live in this attitude of surrender, of being sent. Uh, You ever been sent somewhere on a mission? Uh, Any guys in the room? Guys, let me hear you. Come on, I I see a few more guys in that. But guys, let me hear you. all right. Yeah, right. Um, Your wife ever send you to the store? (laughs) Women, go ahead. How how often do we fail at our task, right? I gave you three things, and you come back with three things, but not the three things you sent me. I'm… Kind of bad with this because you know, sometimes Les will give me a really meticulous list. Hey, babe, do I need to write that down? Babe, I got it, I got it. I mean, she had stuff like some weird soap or some you know, uh, herb or something. I seriously walked around the store like 30 minutes trying to find an herb one time, and it's like, um, she might give me three things, I might come back with chocolate, bananas, and peanut butter. You know, it's like, oh, those things just sounded really good to me right now. I'll get home. She goes, where's my cream cheese? Where's, you know, whatever it may be. One time specifically, uh, we were pastoring in in North Texas, and it was a Sunday afternoon. I was going to visit some folks in the hospital and pray with them and just visit with them. And she said, babe, do me a favor. On your way back, on your way back, guys, that's like, that's way out there. I'm going to forget, right? On your way back, would you stop and get some laundry detergent? laundry detergent. I mean, I'm thinking, I I probably put a post-it note on my mirror or something. Don't forget laundry detergent. So, I'm on my way back from the hospital. I grabbed my little flip phone. Remember those? And I called my wife and I said, hey, babe, just letting you know, I'm going to stop at the store and get laundry detergent. I was so proud of myself in that moment. Guys, are you with me? I'm proud. I remembered. Ladies, would you be proud in that moment? I literally pull in. I'm sitting in front of this little store, and I'm on the phone with my wife because I'm going to go. I'm gonna, I was sent. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get laundry detergent. And we're on the phone, and we're talking, and I said, hey, is there anything else you need? No, I, I think we're good. Wah, 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 snake. That's all I hear on the other end of the phone. And all of a sudden, it goes dead. Now, guys, in that moment, what am I supposed to do? I mean, come on, seriously, what am I supposed to do? If I'm not home right now, I'm in trouble. If I come home without laundry detergent… So guys, help me out. What did I do in that moment? I got out of the car. I walked in the store. I said, my wife is an adult she can handle this. She's a mother of three small children. She deals with crises all the time. She's got this snake thing. I didn't want to know what was going on. Now, so I go in the store and and I learn something. Walking in the laundry detergent aisle is like walking in the cereal aisle. (laughs) What is all this stuff, right? And I know the cereal aisle, because all the good stuff's down here. All the, all the cereal I like is down here, because they market it to the children. So, I'm down here with all the sugary goodness. I don't know what I'm doing in the laundry detergent aisle, but I, I got something, and I casually drove home. My phone is not ringing. It's not blowing up. I get home, and there's a truck sitting in our driveway from a, a guy that we had had the privilege of leading to Christ and baptizing. His name was Bo. Bo the Handyman. And so, here's Bo the Handyman's truck sitting in her… She knew not to call me back. She called Bo. What she didn't know about Bo is Bo… I mean, Bo's just a big, burly… Hey, he is deathly afraid of snakes. And Leslie didn't know that, but Bo was not going to put on… It's like, oh, Ms. Leslie, I got this. Where's that snake? I'll… When you're sent you got to stay on task. And I think sometimes when we live as sent individuals for the cause of Christ, we get distracted by other things. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves, our careers, our families, our hobbies, our interests, all these things, but they need to be in perspective, and they should never pull us away from the mission of Jesus because that's where we're sent. Every face, every place, every space. So, we're going to press into Matthew chapter 9 this morning. If you have a Bible, I trust you do. Say, I got mine. mine. Matthew chapter 9. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to unpack a few verses. And and what I see in this, really a simple narrative, but it's profound. All of Scripture is profound. I'll just tell you that. It, It may seem easy or it may not seem there's something there, but I'm telling you, every word in Scripture is meaningful. Matthew chapter 9, if you're there, say, I'm there. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 35. And I simply want to to look at five things that I see in this passage with Jesus and His disciples in the crowd that's there, five indicators, five things that we should understand if we are going to be one that is sent by Jesus. If I'm going to live as someone who is sent by Jesus, I need to understand. You need to understand. We must understand, I think, these five things. There's probably a whole lot more there, but these are the five things that I want to share with you this morning. Beginning in verse 35, it says, and Jesus went. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the, what is that word? The gospel. Jesus went all the cities, and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing every disease and every affliction. Let's just stop right there, because in order to be sent by Jesus to live on purpose intentionally for him, we must receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, you can know all about Jesus, but never receive Jesus. You can have your membership at some church somewhere and not know Jesus. I know this from personal experience because I've talked through the years with countless people who will tell me uh, that that they're going to go to heaven because they're a member of a church, or they're going to go to heaven because uh, they've taken communion or they've been baptized. And I simply say, have you come to that place in your life that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt? You have surrendered your heart and life to the person of Jesus Christ. So you've trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sin because you can't pay that price on your own? And are you willing to live your life in absolute surrender to Him? And when people look at me and say, no, I'm not going to do that, okay, then you don't know Jesus. And some of you here this morning, I I I want to say this as lovingly as I can. You might know all about Jesus, but you don't know Him. And maybe this morning He's going to speak to your heart. And I want you to know that today is the day of salvation. You can come to know him personally. He loves you. He's chasing you down. He's pursuing you. He desires a personal relationship with you, but you have to give up. You have to give up your life and surrender to him. So Jesus is going around and he's proclaiming the good news. What is the good news? The word gospel, as it's used here, literally means good news. The gospel is good news. The fact that I'm a sinner is bad news. The fact that Jesus loves me in my sin, paid the price for my sin, made a way for me to have a relationship with Him is good news. Right? You can't understand the good news unless you understand the bad news. The bad news is we're all sinful. I'm looking at some of you, and you're going, not me, but, but yeah. Can I just say we're all in the same boat, right? For the Bible says, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I have you have. But the good news is that God made a way. John three sixteen for God so loved, what? The world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have, what? Everlasting life, eternal life. Probably many of you memorized that once upon a time in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. God loves you, and He made a way for you to have a relationship with him. Romans 10, 9 and 10. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is not simply an intellectual assent. That's not simply knowing something intellectually. It literally means that you are surrendering yourself to him. God, I give up. I'm a sinner. There's not a thing I can do. I give up. Please take control of my life and live through me. Make me the person that you want me to be. That picture is all through the book of Acts as the church started, as the church began in the book of Acts. Uh, When you read through the book of Acts, when you you see reference to Jesus, there's two times that He's referred to as Savior. There's 93 times that He's referred to as Lord. Do you think that's significant? Jesus didn't come just to save you from the penalty of sin. Jesus came to take control of your life, to live through you so that you can live as one who is sent. I was listening to Alistair Begg, and and I love what what he said. I'm just going to read this to you. I won't do it in his Scottish accent because someone would go, that wasn't Scottish at all. But I love his teaching. I love his preaching. Here is the simplicity with which he shared the good news of the gospel. He said, the story of the good news is that our messed up, broken lives may be restored, refreshed, renewed, regalvanized, put back together in a better version than before as a result of what Jesus has done that Jesus has borne the judgment that we deserve, that He grants to us forgiveness that we don't deserve. He takes all of our stuff, and He takes it onto Himself, and He credits us with His righteousness. Isn't that a great word? The good news, the gospel, is that Jesus doesn't give me what I do deserve, but He gives me something that I don't deserve at all. And so, as we look at this passage, what we realize is that when we become a recipient of the gospel, once I have received the gospel, I now become a participant in the gospel with Jesus. So, we must receive the gospel, but second, I want you to see that we need to look then to the model of Jesus. Jesus is going around and He's proclaiming the good news. And and what you see when you read the book of Acts, let's just put the or the book of Matthew. Well, let's put this in context for just a moment. We're in Matthew chapter 9. You go to the beginning of Matthew 9, you go back into 8, 7, 6, 5. What you see is Jesus teaching, Jesus doing miracles, Jesus healing blind people, healing paralytics. He's teaching, he's doing all these incredible things because back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus began to call to himself in his public ministry his first disciples. So from 4 all the way up now through chapter 9, what we see is Jesus doing the work of the ministry while his guys are following him around. And what Jesus is doing is he is modeling for them. He's teaching them by example, here's what we do. Now, Jesus didn't call them and say, hey, guys, come with me, we're going to go to the synagogue and we're going to sit around and watch video series and read books and do all these things. He said, nope, you come and follow me. Do life with me, and while we're doing life, you're going to learn by my modeling, by my demonstration, by my example of what ministry is all about, and along the way, I'm going to teach you. He modeled it. If we're going to have the ministry of Jesus, we need to have the the model of Jesus' ministry. Jesus here in this text, now as we come to the end of chapter 9, sort of temporarily turns away, if you would, from his public ministry, and, and he begins to, to press in and concentrate exclusively on these men that he is discipling. And there's an interesting change of language from verse 35 of chapter 9 to verse 1 of chapter 10. Because all along the way up to this point, Jesus is doing, Jesus is doing, he's teaching, he's healing, he's teaching, he's healing. He's got this multitude of people that are just following him, this crowd that's following him because Jesus is awesome, right? And he's doing all these incredible things, but now there's this shift because Jesus is now saying, hey, look, I've been teaching you these things. I've been demonstrating and modeling what this looks like, and then he comes to chapter 10, verse 1, right after our text this morning, and this is what he says. He then called his disciples to himself, and he gave them authority. Oh, Jesus has been doing all this Now he turns around and says, "Now I am giving you all authority. Go preach the gospel. Go heal. Go sick. Go raise the dead. Go cast out demons." Now I don't know about you, but I'd have gone. I'm not ready for that. I haven't taken the twelve week course, right? Hey, I just I I I just kind of came along. I'm just starting to follow you here. Uh, I, I don't know enough. And, and we would have started throwing out all the 21st century American church reasons why we can't participate in the ministry. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not called to do that. Jesus is modeling for them. And then right here, he says, I am giving you authority If you've become a recipient of the gospel, you are now a participant in the gospel ministry. It's no surprise that Jesus finishes his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 28 after he's been dead, after he was buried, after he rose from the dead, appeared to his disciples for 40 more days teaching them. He's standing on the mountain in Galilee and he's saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me therefore go and make disciples. Here's where that started. The things you've heard me say, the things you've seen me do, you go do these things, and I'm going to model it for you, and I'm going to teach you along the way. I'm going to do it. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you a chance to do it. I'm going to follow up with you. Hey, you could have done this a little bit different. This was Jesus' modeling process. The problem with with church today is that we expect this of our leaders, but not everyone else. And that's, that's not what the Bible is teaching us. We are the body of Christ. Robert Coleman wrote a book back in, I think it was probably 1963 when he first wrote a book entitled The Master Plan of Evangelism. Phenomenal book. Absolutely phenomenal book revolutionize the way you see and perceive your life and your ministry with Jesus Christ. And he walks through the process of what Jesus did with his disciples, right, from his selection to his association, to his consecration, to his demonstration, then ultimately to the release And that's exactly what he's doing here. He has been demonstrating. He's selected them. He's consecrated them. He's teaching them. Now he's demonstrating for them what this means. That book came out, I think he wrote it in 63, but just a few years ago at uh, the Discipleship National Conference, they were doing a forum, and Dr. Coleman was there very wise, godly man who has just poured his life into countless thousands and one-on-one relationships, had incredible impact. And he and a guy named Bobby Harrington that leads discipleship.org uh, were doing this forum and just talking. And he was talking through, uh, and, and they took the, the manuscript of that and turned it into a booklet called uh, Revisiting or Rediscovering the Master Plan of Evangelism. And speaking about this process of demonstration, I want you to hear what this elderly gentleman shared after all these years. He said, in everything else, they, speaking of the disciples, witnessed His, that's Jesus, compassion for the people, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, and displaying tenderness for the children. They were learning to have a real consciousness of social needs, of a lost and floundering world. He didn't write them off, He loved them, even the people that rejected Him. They were seeing this in living color, incredible as it may have seemed to them. They were learning what it means to have a burden for lost and hurting people. How were the disciples to pick up the idea that they they should have a burden for lost and hurting people? They saw it demonstrated in the life of Jesus. So, we have to look to the model of Jesus. This is exactly what what Jesus said, John chapter 20 and verse 21. Pastor Scott will preach on this in a couple of weeks and really unpack it. But but he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This was Jesus' ministry. Even as the Father sent me, I'm going to go witness, and I'm going to heal, and I'm going to do ministry, and I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to demonstrate what it means. I'm going to model it for you, and then I'm going to send you to do just what I've been doing. And you're going to take somebody with you. You see, we're never going to have the ministry of Jesus apart from the methods of Jesus, and that was modeling. You ever take somebody with you and just go, hey, I'm going to go do this act of love because I feel sent by God, and I'm going to go witness, or I'm going to go love people, or I'm going to go pray with people, and you just take someone with you because you want to model what that looks like. Several years ago doing student ministry, um, I took some young guys out that I was discipling, and I said, hey, let's go to the mall. They're like, okay, cool. We like the mall, you know, and uh, so, you know, where else you go when you go to the mall but the cookie store? Am I right? Come on, give, can I get a witness? The cookie store, man. I love the cookie store. So we're in line at the cookie store. And up in front of us just a little bit, I see a couple students about the age of the guys that I'm with, and they have on their wrist this—anybody remember the gospel bead bracelet? My friend Hannah Joy caught me after first service because she has one on. It's like a red bead and a black bead and a yellow bead and a green bead, and—and and, uh, so, I leaned over to these guys because we had just done some of this with a camp and a training, and, and it was just kind of the hip thing back then, right? Um, this was like even pre-WWJD, right? Remember that? This was like before that. And so, I, I think Jesus would have gone to got a cookie. I, you know, what would Jesus do? He'd go to the cookie store and get one for everybody. So, um, so I noticed these guys got these gospel bead bracelets, and I said, guys, take yours off because they had them on. I said, take them off, stick it in your pocket. Okay. Okay, Pastor Dave, you know. I said, do you think they know what that means? I said, well, let's, we don't know. Let's go find out. So, they got their cookies, and they went, and I was kind of watching. And they went and sat in the center court area, and we got our cookies, and so we went out there and, and just kind of struck up a conversation, right? Evangelism begins with hello, if you don't know what to do this week, just say hello to somebody and just see where God takes that. So evangelism begins with hello. So I'm like, hey, guys, how you doing? Oh, man, we're good, we're good. And, and uh, I said, you know, I, I see that bracelet you have on. And uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's just, I said, what does that mean? What, what are those colors? They go, I don't know. Right? they have been at some function. And it's like, I don't know. I said, you know, I said, it's really interesting. I said, now I'm kind of old and stuff, but I remember when I was a kid, my parents took me to Sunday school, and I said, there was this book, and I said, it it just, it reminds me of those same colors, because it was, they called it the wordless book. Now, you know, everyone's kind of turning our chairs in, and we're talking, and I said, they called it the wordless book, and, and every color represented something. I said, I remember black talked about sin, And how red was the blood of Christ, and white means that He washes away my sins, and the good news of the gospel, blah, blah, blah. So, after a while, these two young guys in the mall give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. Now, that was awesome. These two young guys that I was discipling at the time got so, I mean, not because of that. God had a call in our life. That's why I was with them, intentionally pouring into them. Both those guys are pastoring churches right now. And, but, but it was already the call that God had in their life. What I wanted to do is demonstrate for them the simplicity of a gospel conversation in everyday life. We found out the next day that these two young guys that we met in the mall had run away from home, and they were on the run because they felt like they had no value, no purpose in life. And so, they had not gone home that night, but the next day, we were actually able to reconnect them with their families. But guys, listen, the the truth of the matter is we have to model for people what it is to do ministry. We can sit around and teach it, and we can take notes, and we can fill in blanks, but there's nothing like just go do it. Just go out and do it. We have to model the ministry, and we have to follow Jesus' example in doing that. So we have to receive the gospel. We have to look to the model of Jesus. But the third thing I want you to see, listen to me really careful. We need to see people the way Jesus sees people. We need to see people the way Jesus sees people. I don't know if you've noticed this in our culture, but there's this huge divide. Anybody? I mean, it might seem really subtle to you. Anybody else notice that? There's this huge separation that's growing more and more and more in our culture. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are quickly becoming the most bigoted, most intolerant people on the face of the earth. Now, listen, who is responsible to bridge this gap of separation? Jesus has bridged the gap, and He's sending us to a lost and dying world. And in order to do that, we have to see people the way Jesus sees people. Now, <clears throat> I know if you're anything like me, people are irritating. Can I seriously, seriously? Can I get a witness? Anybody with me? <clears throat> I, I tell my wife often, I said, You know, as I get older, I discover the things that people do that irritate me are the things that I actually do. <laughs> um, yeah, pe- people are hard, people are difficult. But if we're going to love people the way Jesus loves people, we need to learn to see people the way Jesus sees people. So look at verse 36. <clears throat> It says, when he, that's Jesus, when he saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Your translation may say distressed or dejected. Uh, it may say that they were harassed, cast away, helpless, confused. Now, I want you to just put, put this in perspective for a moment. Jesus by far the most incredible teacher that ever lived. is traveling around the Sea of Galilee. He's up in Capernaum. He's doing ministry. People are flocking to him. Everywhere he goes, people are drawn to Jesus. Some for good motive, because he speaks with compassion and grace, this authoritative truth of God. Others are drawn to him because he feeds us when we're hungry. Others are drawn to him because he's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. He's making blind eyes see. He's making people who have been lame get up and walk. Who doesn't want to hang around this guy? So we don't know exactly the setting. We don't know where he is in this moment. But at least in my head, I imagine him maybe along the the shore, the Sea of Galilee, and and seeing people coming toward uh, the shore. Uh, Or maybe he's up kind of in a a mountainous area, and he sees them down below. I don't know, but Jesus sees a crowd. He sees a multitude of people, and and instead of uh, just turning away, it says he had compassion for them. Now, the word that's that's actually used here is a word uh, of intestinal movement, almost as if to be disemboweled a hurt, a a longing, a, oh my gosh, this is awful. If if you've ever been in that situation where you just have this this feeling of compassion that this is bad, this is a bad situation, that's the language that we get here. And, And Jesus says that they were like, they were helpless, they were harassed, Uh, The language, again, if you break that down a little bit, we we start getting this picture uh, as Jesus is is speaking these words. The disciples would have not just seen this as, oh, hey, look, people are are having a rough time. The language of Jesus would would have been almost like a flaying or a skinning. Uh, that they were harassed, severely troubled. They were, they were being battered, bruised, torn down, worn down, exhausted, thrown down, cast down, utterly helpless, uh, almost like a mortal wound. These people have, have experienced a mortal wound. They are cast down. They are hopeless and helpless. But here's what's interesting because Jesus looked at this downcast multitude and he brought in not the physical component, he brought in a spiritual component because he said they are like sheep without a what? A shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion to the point that, I mean, it was like, this is horrible, this is a bad situation, has nothing to do with their physical state, it has everything to do with their spiritual state. He's speaking to his disciples. He's modeling and teaching and instructing them. Guys, listen, these folks are helpless. They are defenseless. They are spiritually battered. They are spiritually thrown down. They are without spiritual leadership. They were without care. They were without nurture. No one is proclaiming the love and the goodness of God to these people. That's why we're here. Who's supposed to be doing that for these people? I mean, think, think, think of the time of, of history. Who is supposed to be caring for these people? Who is Jesus beating up verbally right now? The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the church who aren't doing their job. So much so that we see it. Let me just jump back, Matthew chapter 23, because Jesus comes back several chapters later and, and He gives seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me just read a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4, speaking of the scribes and Pharisees, he says, they, the scribes and Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, they they have answers in the holy word of God, but they aren't willing to do a thing about it. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, can I just stop right there? Woe to you, child of God. Woe to you, person who claims a relationship with Jesus. Woe to you, Southbridge Fellowship, if you are a hypocrite. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow others who would enter to go in. He's saying, woe to you for not doing the work of the gospel that you have received. And so he's getting on the scribes and Pharisees. Well, listen, let's put that in New Testament church terms. We are the priesthood of the believers. (laughs) You and I have responsible for what? Every face, every place, every time and space. You see, if you're face to face with someone in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, at the store, at the hospital, at the mechanic shop, whatever it is, you're there, not me. You're there, not Pastor Scott. You're there, not Pastor John. You're there, not Pastor Brad. You're there, not Pastor DJ you're there, not any one of our elders. So, when we talk about being passionate about connecting people to life change, uh, to Jesus for life change, what does that mean? We say it at Southbridge all the time, right? We are passionate about connecting people to, say it like you believe it, we're passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. Are you? You see, we can only be passionate as a church when we're passionate as individuals. We can't go, oh, man, Southbridge, we're passionate about So what do you mean when you tell someone that? Do you mean, well, I give money regularly to the church so that we can pay Pastor Scott to be passionate about connecting people? See, I can be passionate. Pastor Scott is passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. He's passionate, one of the most passionate people I know about seeing lost people come to Jesus and engaging lost people. But we, as a church, are only passionate when we, as individuals, when I, go ahead and put yourself in there, I am passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. Therefore, we, as a church, are passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. Somebody say, amen. Amen. Okay, so that means you're on board, right? We do this together. We don't do it individually. We do this collectively. We live as family, and we do this collectively as a church. Dr. Paul Brand, uh, I want to read just a segment from his book. Dr. Paul Brand was born in 1914. He was born to some missionary parents in India, and he had a love for the medical field, so he ended up going into England, and he got a medical degree. Uh, He became kind of a pioneer in the world of leprosy. Now, you know Jesus dealt with a lot of lepers, right? Right. Um, it, was, it was Dr. Brand who kind of came to the realization that leprosy is really not a skin disease, it's a tendon disease. And what would happen most often is that someone with, with, with nerve problems in, in their hand or their foot or their leg, they didn't have feeling and so they would get an injury or a wound and without being properly cared for because they can't feel it, the skin would begin to rot And so, lepers were perceived as this, oh, you can't touch them, you can't touch them. And so, Dr. Brand was one of these guys in the medical arena that that began to press into realizing this is not a tissue issue, it's a nerve issue. And he was kind of a medical pioneer in, in developing a tendon transfer surgery. I mean, incredible guy, loved the Lord. He wrote a book, he wrote several books, but he wrote a book uh, years ago called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And in that book, I just want to read this segment to you. He says, He, that's Jesus, reached out his hand and touched the eyes of the blind. He touched the skin of the person with leprosy, he touched the legs of the cripple. He said, I've sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people that he healed many of whom must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary, smelly. With His power, He easily could have waved a magic wand, but He chose not to. Jesus' mission was not chiefly a crusade against disease, but rather a ministry to individual people, some of whom happen to have a disease. He wanted those people one by one to feel his love and warmth and his full identification with them. Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching. How do we see people? Do we see people the way Jesus sees people? This was Jesus' mission. He came to heal people spiritually. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came... uh, to seek and to save the lost. And so, in this narrative, Jesus saw something in the crowd the disciples didn't see. And he was modeling and demonstrating what that looks like. A quick story of the great preacher D.L. Moody. Uh, many of you know the, the works and the writings and the history of D.L. Moody. Years ago, he was in a uh, uh, crusade. He was in an evangelistic crusade in England, and, and three clergymen from, from England set up a meeting with, with D.L. Moody because they wanted, to, they wanted to learn his trick of the trade, right? Hey, Pastor Moody, what makes you so effective? Because when he would preach, hundreds and thousands of people would come to Jesus. And so they set up a meeting, and they, they had a meeting in his hotel room, and D.O. And Moody asked the clergyman, he said, come and look out my hotel window and tell me what you see. And there was a park out there, and it's the streets with the busyness. And one by one, these clergy would say, well, you know, I see families playing in the park, or I see people busily working along the streets. And, you know, and, and then one of the gentlemen asked, well, you know, what do you see, Mr. Moody? What, what do you see when you look out the window? And I don't want to mess up exactly what he said. He said, I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find the Savior. What do you see when you look at people? Now, don't get me wrong. We live in a messed up world but they either become our enemy or they become our mission field. These are people that Jesus loves, people died for. So we have to receive the gospel. We have to look to Jesus as a model. We have to see people. Fourth, we have to pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. He says it right here. When they ask, it's like Jesus says, therefore, because of these things, because of the spiritual condition of these people who are doomed for an eternity, separated from the love of my Father, therefore, He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly. Now, if you're like me, most church folks, we're going to look at this and we're going to think, oh, we need to we need to pray for lost people, and we do. Second Timothy 1 gives us really clear instruction. He, he's given us instruction on what it means to pray for people, to care for people. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy, I think 2, 1 through 8, just talking about praying for our leaders and praying for all people. And, and so, yeah, we need to pray. But it's interesting because what Jesus says here is we need to pray earnestly, not for the lost. He doesn't say, hey, you need to pray for those people who are lost. Jesus says, I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Now, most of the time we look at this and we simply say, oh, this is a great evangelistic thing. People are out there and they need Jesus and and we're going to send the Lord of the harvest who brings people to himself. Most scholars believe this is really a title given to God about his judgment. The Lord of the harvest is, is, is a title of judgment. Jesus is looking at these lost people And he says, there is a judgment coming upon these people, and they will forever spend an eternity separated from me if they don't find me. So, pray the Lord of the harvest would send laborers to help rescue these people from eternity of perishing. There's a different sense of urgency that Jesus is speaking with when he says, I want you to pray earnestly. Not that we shouldn't pray, we have to pray for people. Jesus also says in his, in his ministry, he says, no one comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him or enables him. We need to pray for lost people, but while we're praying for lost people, I need to pray that I'm willing to be an answer to that prayer. Are you with me? If you're going to pray for somebody, it changes your perspective on who they are. Begin to pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those people that irritate you and annoy you. So please, pray for me, right? Uh, I want you to, to pray for these people. And as you're praying for them, would you pray the Lord of the harvest to give you a boldness and a courage to go to them and be an answer to your prayer? That's what he's saying. Pray that the Lord of the harvest give his people a sense of urgency that they wake up to the reality that these, that these individuals are lost and separated from God. Fifth, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. To send, it means to to put out or to send away, not something we're really good at at church, to bring people in to equip to send them, Uh, because we like to be together, don't we? We like to just kind of stay together, and it's like, hey, we've been friends forever. Uh, We will be friends forever, one day in eternity. So, right now, go get busy. I love you. I'll see you when we gather and we celebrate, but go get busy for the kingdom right? Send laborers into His harvest. Laborer speaks to both our action and our position. When I read this, I hear two things, because it's like there's an action I have to labor, but there's also a position that I am a laborer under the Master. So, it speaks to my position with Christ as my authority, that He's going to rule over me, and I'm going to live in submission and surrender to Him. Amen? Amen. It's His harvest. I'm simply a laborer, co-laborers with Christ, as Paul tells us in Romans. We're heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We're working with Him. He invites us into the mission. Jesus comes back in Matthew chapter 20 and tells the story. In verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing, right, I've agreed, I've accepted the gospel, I've agreed to live in surrender, I've agreed to be a laborer in the field with a laborer for a denarii a day, he sent them into his vineyard. I've made an agreement with God to live in surrender and submission to Him, and He is sending me out. He is my authority. My position is under Him, and I have to work. I am not. Now, here, we got to be really careful. I am not working for my salvation. I am working because of my salvation. I am saved. I am secured based on nothing that I have done, but by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Now, I get to get involved. What's your motive being here today? Are you here because you have to be, or are you here because you get to be? I get to be here today. I get to go to a lost and dying world. I get to live in relationship with Jesus Christ. I get to tell people about the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. I get to be involved. I don't have to. I get to. It's the same word that probably many of us have memorized in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Uh, Do your best to present yourself to God to one approved, a worker. You may have memorized this in King James, a workmanship, right? A workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God. So I'm not sure how God is speaking to your heart today, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your things and just close it up, because we're going to stop. How is God speaking to your heart? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and someone just needs to give your heart and life to Jesus. Today is the day. Don't run. Don't leave this place without saying, God, I need you in the best way and how I give you control of my life. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic words. It's simply surrendering your heart and life to what God has already done for you and living in surrender. As Nikki and Bryce are coming, I'm going to be right over here, and if you want to come and talk about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, I would love to talk with you or find someone near you that you know and say, man, help me understand, what does this mean? But if you've never given your life to Christ this morning, can I just encourage you to receive the good news, receive the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe you realize that God is sending you somewhere. Maybe God is dealing with your heart because you need to see people the way God sees people. Maybe God's calling you in your personal walk and relationship with Him to begin to step up and begin to model for someone else and begin to teach them and instruct them and take them with you and teach them what ministry is all about. Maybe your prayer life needs to change. Maybe your action and boldness needs to change because you need to go and step out. God, this morning, it's all about you as Nikki and Bryce are going to lead us in a song. It's all about Him. God, I'm sorry for anything else that I've made it when it's about You. And so I want us to just do business with God this morning. And you're going to be invited to stand, but if you want to remain seated, you remain seated right where you are and just do business with the Lord. God, how are You sending me? Do I see every place, every, every, every face, every space? If you want to come down here and pray, I invite you to do that. If you want someone to come with you, just just look at somebody and, and invite them to come with you and pray together for you or for someone else. If you want to come talk to me, I'll be right over here, my right, your left. Come and talk. Let's talk. Let's pray together. God, what do you want to do in this place in us so that we can leave this place and you can do a mighty work through us to a world that is lost and separated from you? I just want to invite you to do business with the Lord, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Father, throughout this place, we just want to be honest. We want to be transparent. Your spirit is alive. Your spirit is working. Lord, you desire to do a work in us so that you can do a mighty work through us to reach those, Father, who are lost without you. God, we want to be a people who are passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. Lord, I pray that you stir your spirit in our hearts this morning. Lord, that we are not simply attenders. We are not simply passively looking at ministry taking place, but God, that we are stepping in with boldness and courage to participate with you on your mission of rescuing lost people. We love you and we praise you. And God, this morning, we give you all the honor and all the glory. And I just invite you in these next few moments to just do business with the Lord as He leads you. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.